0: Good morning, everyone. All those that are also tuning in online at this time still, welcome. It's good to be able again to start gathering somewhat, even if it is in a bit of a smaller group, but we're at least able to uh, do that already and we're very thankful for that. We'll be continuing on this morning in first Peter where I've been preaching out of the last few times that I have been doing this. So, if you want to turn to First Peter chapter 1, our text for this morning will begin in verse 13. We'll be reading chapter 1 of First Peter verses 13 to 21. So, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded... Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So therefore, that opens up our text in verse 13, signals a conclusion that is about to be reached based on the previous argument or premise that the Apostle Peter set up for his readers in the first 12 verses of his epistle. He is now introducing us to the conclusion or result that his exposition of salvation should stir in the hearts of his readers. So we saw in the first 12 verses that looking to the suffering and glorification of Christ has always been an encouragement to God's children. So even when we are grieved by various trials, we look to the gospel. We look to our living hope. We look to our inheritance and our salvation ready to be revealed. Peter, having told us about our salvation and hope, causes us to ask them, how should that hope impact us? What should we as believers do? This section of 1 Peter is really broken up into two main sections. A series of imperatives that instruct the believer how to live in light of our hope in verses 13-17. to And then also the indicatives where Peter restates the marvelous work of God that is the reason for giving us hope in verses 18 to 21. Peter gives us three exhortations for the believer to obey in living the life of hope. And I've broken up those three exhortations and put them into outline form in this way. Point number one, ready your minds. Point number two, reflect God's holiness. And point number three, revere your God. So we'll be looking at those three imperatives, those three exhortations that Peter gives us in this text. To ready your minds, to reflect God's holiness, and to revere your God. So point number one, you must ready your mind. In verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter states, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this section begins with therefore, which as we remember is referring to this glorious salvation that was planned, accomplished, and applied by the triune God on our behalf, as we see in verses one through nine of first Peter chapter one. Peter also reminds us in verses 10 through 12, that they live in a time of fulfillment when they are privileged to experience what the prophets were only able to look forward to and angels only wondered over. And so having pointed his readers to their living hope as a means to endure trials, Peter continues with the theme of hope in this next section, essentially using the term as bookends in verses 13 and 21. In verse 13, he commands us to hope. While in verse 21, he reminds us why our hope rests in God. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Peter says that we are born again to a living hope. In verse 21, he says, your faith and hope are in God. But in verse 13, he commands, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see the indicative imperative pattern once more because we have a hope that relies on God. We should then set our hope on Him. Because of the certainty of this living hope based on God's character, His plan, and work in salvation, Peter directs us to set our hope. Set your hope, which is the main verb or action commanded in this verse. You are to set your hope. Therefore, fully, on this certainty of our glorious salvation. How do we do this? Peter answers this question for us by giving us two commands. The first one, preparing your minds for action. And the second one, be sober-minded. So looking at these two commands, let's see how Peter is instructing you to ready your minds. The word translated as prepare in the ESV literally means to bind up or to gird up. This verb is commonly referred to as the gathering up of garments, which were worn loose around the home in preparation for some activity. For the whole of biblical history, most people wore loose robes that worked well for ordinary activities, but they inhibited strenuous labor, fighting, or running. To gird up the loins is to wrap up the flowing garments to gain freedom to work hard, to fight in battle, or to run. The soldier would hitch their flowing garments above the knee, Then secured them in place with a belt which increased their agility as they ran into battle. So here this expression is used by Peter as a graphic metaphor for mental alertness. To prepare your minds for action. Or as rendered in other translations, girding up the loins of your mind. Challenging his readers to prepare their minds for deep thinking. In Exodus chapter 12, God told the Israelites to eat the Passover, and here we hear this uh, kind of wording again, eat the Passover with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So the phrase with your belt fastened could also be rendered with your loins girded. In other words, the Israelites were to be ready to flee Egypt at a moment's notice. And this is the language that Peter employs here as he is telling the Christians to be prepared. Be ready for what's to come. Jesus also references this girding in Luke chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Luke chapter 12, verse starting in verse 35. Where we see Jesus also using this kind of language in a sense of being ready to be prepared. So Jesus says in verse 35 of Luke chapter 12, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Verse 35 speaks of dressed for action and verse 37, he will dress himself for service. Both phrases mean to let your loins stay girded and to gird oneself. So we see the reason that Jesus is giving this command of preparedness he's telling them to be prepared because only a few verses later in verse 40 of Luke chapter 12 Jesus says you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect so when Peter tells us to prepare our minds for action he is painting a picture of someone who is prepared to run prepared to go into battle or to work Someone who is not idly sitting by in laziness. This person would have their robes gathered up and tucked into their belt, ready for action. He is telling us that to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ means to be mentally prepared and resolved. To set your hope requires renewed thinking. It requires disciplined thinking. In other words we need to prepare ourselves by having a proper mindset with a mental resolve. The Apostle Paul also speaks of this in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 2, Paul Paul also says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So we see the setting of our mind. This is where it begins to not be transformed or to be conformed into this world, likeness of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind is to prepare our minds, to gird up the loins of our minds, to be prepared to think, to think deeply, to think truthfully. R.C. Sproul writes this, We are living in a period of church history that may be classified as mindless. It is an anti-intellectual period of Christian history, not anti-scientific or anti-technological or even anti-educational, but anti-mind thinking is done by the mind. And Christians are called repeatedly in sacred scriptures not to leave their minds in the parking lot when they enter into the church, but to awaken their minds so that they may think clearly and deeply about the things of God. Some people say that God does not care about the mind, but only the heart, and that an emphasis on the mind leads to rationalism, and from there to modernism, to postmodernism and all else that stands in antithesis to biblical Christianity. It is true that what you think in your mind will never get you into the kingdom of God until it reaches your heart. But we have been created by God in such a way that the pathway to the heart is through the mind. We cannot love with passion that which we know nothing about the book that contains the sacred revelation of Almighty God, his word is addressed in the first instance to our minds. Therefore, the more we understand the truth about God, the more we will be gripped by it in our hearts and changed by it. End quote. So we are to prepare our minds. Prepare your minds for action. And Peter goes on, and be sober-minded. So after he tells us in verse 13, to prepare your minds for action, and be sober-minded. This next command, to be sober-minded, builds on the concept of preparation that he mentions in the first command. To prepare your minds for action, and be sober-minded, it continues on. They're not separate, but it's a continuation of this concept. The word translated as sober-minded usually means to be sober, balanced, or self-controlled. Peter is telling his readers to be clear-minded and reasonable. The opposite of being sober is drunkenness, or a lack of self-control or discipline. Think about how drunkenness affects every aspect of our body. It clouds our judgments. It slows our reflexes. It causes us to say and do things we normally would not say or do. Peter is saying in this verse to prepare your minds and to be sober-minded. It is our mind that controls our actions. It is our mind that controls our actions. So we are to set our hope fully on the promises of God and His salvation and worship at His altar alone. We are to be sober in our thinking, not drunk or preoccupied with the things of this world. Peter wants us to focus our full attention on Jesus through whom God has given us abundant grace. So we can ask ourselves, are you fully setting your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Are you preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded? This setting of our hope Fully on the grace of God is what enables us then to live as we are called as children of God. And that is in holiness. This leads us to point number two. You must reflect God's holiness. And this command, this imperative we find in verses 14 to 16 of our text. So in verse 14, Peter says, as obedient children, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the particle translated as as in the beginning of verse 14 could also have been translated as like. But Peter does not intend this to be a metaphorical comparison. He is not telling us you should be like obedient children, but he is stating we are as obedient children. We are obedient children. This is who we are. This is how the world should see us, not comparing us to others, but to see us as obedient children to God. So this particle as more so illustrates the perspective from which someone is viewed. We are viewed as obedient children. You are children characterized by obedience to God, not conforming to the passions of your former ignorance. And this is similar to Paul's statement again in Romans 12 verse 2 as we read a few minutes ago. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The imperative or command to not be conformed in verse 14 of our text is then not another command, but rather it is the negative counterpart of what we see is the main verb in this section. We see in verse 15, the main command, the main verb that Peter gives us is be holy in all your conduct. So not being conformed to this world is the opposite or being conformed to the world, sorry, is opposite of being holy. The world is not holy. God is holy. We are called to be set apart. That is who we are as holy children of God. So Peter is building on that. the Building up to his main point. Do not be conformed to this to this world, but be transformed. And how do we do that? Be holy in all your conduct. To be holy. A mark of a true child of God is holiness a transformation away from the passions and desires of our former ignorance, which here reflects not only an intellectual problem, but also a moral problem. We used to be ignorant of God and His ways, but not so anymore. As we are now His children, we are called to be holy, for God is holy. The command in verse 15 again is to be holy in all your conduct, not to become holy, as this could be taken in a sense then that our holiness is dependent on human conduct. But I believe Peter is saying here that believers already are holy because of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The command here rather is for believers to conduct yourselves in such a way that reflects this holiness. As the reality is, you are set apart in Christ. He is your righteousness. God's character is first holy. This holiness refers to God's transcendence, his superiority over all his creation, and we must remember God as creator is different than we are as his creatures. God is different than his creation. He is on a completely different level. So just as Israel was called to be holy, they were called to be a holy nation because God is holy. And in the same manner, New Testament Christians are called to be holy for we also serve a holy God. One commentator makes this observation, the concept of holiness in the old covenant related to those things which were consecrated or dedicated to God for his service. In this sense, when God declares himself to be holy, he means that he is dedicated to himself, to his own service. Everything he does is for his own name and glory. He alone is uniquely distinct from all else. He alone is an uncreated being. He alone dwells in unapproachable light. Therefore, nothing common or unclean can come into his presence. Consequently, only those things or persons which are made clean and consecrated to God for his service, that is, made holy, can approach God's presence. End quote. God chose Israel for his special people. If you turn to Exodus chapter 19, we'll we'll read a little bit in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. And here we see how God chose Israel for his special people out of all the nations of the earth. He called them to be separate, to be different, to be holy. He would be their God. So in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, And a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So we see God separated them from all the other nations of the earth to serve Him, to be set apart. He gave them a law that would distinguish them from all the surrounding nations and would show them that Israel served God alone. Their diet was different, their clothing was different. Their relationships were different. Their worship was different. And likewise, how we as Christians conduct ourselves in this world, as exiles in this foreign land, reveals then to whom we also belong and who we serve. We are called to be holy, to be set apart, to be different. Just as God is different from the world as believers and heirs of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, we too are to be different from the world in our conduct, in our service, and in our worship. If you are a child of God, you have been made holy. You have been set apart from this world as an elect exile to serve our Creator God, to reflect His holiness. We are to be devoted to God through holy conduct, service, and holy worship. This urges you to continually examine yourselves. Is there any area not dedicated to reflecting God's holiness? These are ways that we as believers can examine ourselves and seek to grow in holiness and to reflect God's character through that. And as we go further in our text into verse 17, we see the third imperative here, the third command and exhortation that Peter gives us. You must revere your God. You must revere your God. Verse 17 of chapter 1 says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So you must revere God. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout this time of exile. But Peter begins verse 17 with what is called a conditional clause. He begins with, if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, if you call on him, then conduct yourselves with fear. More specifically, the if is assumed here to be true. Think about it this way. If you are God's children, you will call on him as father. And so in this way, it should cause the readers, this question, if, or this statement, if you call on him as father, should cause the readers to ask themselves, Do I call on Him as Father? Am I a child of God? Yes, I am a child of God. Therefore, yes, I call on Him as Father. So we see the statement, if you call on Him as Father to the believer, having examined himself, it is a true statement. Yes, I call on Him as Father. Then you also are exhorted to conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Peter is combining two concepts here that we have a tendency to separate. God is both Father and Judge. He is not only one or the other. He is both Father and Judge. As Peter said, if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourself in fear, with fear. We are privileged to call on God as our Father. We are. It is a privilege that we have as His children, but that does not exempt us from obedience. In fact, it does the exact opposite. Just as children are expected and commanded to obey your parents, we too are called to obey our Heavenly Father, who is also an impartial judge. Though your status as a child of God makes you exiles in this foreign land that you inhabit as strangers, you must retain an awe of the mighty and holy Creator God. C.E.B. Cranfield makes this observation. It is of God's infinite condescension that you are allowed to call Him Father. You are not to presume on his goodness, but rather let it make you reverent and humble. He has not ceased to be the impartial judge of all men. The more truly, the more intimately we know him, the more awe and reverence we shall feel. End quote. The noun translated here as fear in verse 17, where we are commanded to conduct ourselves in fear, It denotes a holy fear or awe, or as we commonly refer to it, as a reverent fear. Peter is reminding his readers that God is still the one who judges sin and punishes sin. The fear of the Lord is knowing that the God on whom we call as our Father is also the judge of this world. It is knowing that he will judge every human being without partiality, This thinking, this sober-mindedness will lead you to pursue a life of self-control, to pursue holiness, because this awe is a reverent fear of offending or misrepresenting a holy God. So the command that Peter has given us here, the imperative is to conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, to conduct yourselves. But I believe he uses the father and the impartial judge titles to motivate us to conduct ourselves in this way. So as a few sub points under this heading, A, let's take a look at the fact that he is an impartial judge. He is an impartial judge. How does this motivate us to conduct ourselves with fear and holy living? We need not be reminded that God is our father. That is something as believers we sing about, we talk about, we rejoice in, and as we should. But we do often forget that he is also our judge. Peter reminds his readers here very distinctly that God is both our Father and Judge who judges according to each one's deeds. Matthew also speaks of this in his gospel. So if you have your bibles ready, turn to Matthew chapter 12. Let's read in Matthew chapter 12 starting in verse 33. And we'll see here how Matthew ad- speaks on this same topic. In Matthew chapter 12 verse 33, he writes, "Either make the good tree and its fruit good, or make the bad tree and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit." You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, in the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified And by your words, you will be condemned. So we see Matthew also addresses this judgment. Our day of salvation is also our day of judgment. Just as James tells us that our faith without works is dead, therefore, it is our works that testify of our faith. To be very clear, we are not saved by works. But as we saw in Matthew's gospel as well our works or our fruit testify of our faith our deeds matter because our deeds will be judged impartially one commentary that I read on this stated this this should seem strange having just encouraged us to a hope in that coming day To place our hope in that coming day, why would Peter now warn us about God's coming judgment and exhort us to fear God? After all, isn't our salvation all of grace? Yes, it is. But Peter is concerned that we do not have a domesticated view of God. He is a saving God because he is a judging God. He can be a saving God because he is a ruling God. We will not enjoy living with the love of God unless we also live with the right fear of God. We need to live in awe of our God, our Creator. This should motivate us to live in a reverent fear of him who created us. But Peter also says that he is our father. If we call on him as father who judges us impartially. So here we see another motivation. He is a gracious father. The second sub-point here. He is a gracious father. This is another motivation we have to fear God. It is because he is our gracious father. Peter begins verse 18 with saying, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways. The word translated as knowing is typically used rhetorically in the New Testament to provide the reason for a previous imperative. So Peter has commanded us, he's given us an imperative in verse 17, that we are to conduct ourselves with fear. This is his main command, the main verb in that verse, to conduct ourselves with fear. And in verse 18, he gives us the reason or the rationale behind that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the reason for this command, he gives the command, again, the imperative to be steadfast, to be immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. And then he gives the reason. Why? Because we know our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor is for Him and will ultimately be used by Him then. Paul also uses that uh, phrase in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8. Here he says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, So we know that whatever good we do, this he will receive back from the Lord. So again, it gives a rationale for why we are to do something. Peter uses knowing here then in such a way that it provides the rationale for the reverent conduct that he has called us to in verse 17 where he said, conduct yourselves with fear. Why? Because we know. Knowing that you were ransomed, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. This is what we know. What do Peter's readers know that causes them to revere God? Exactly what we see. We live not only with future judgment in our sights, but also with God's past redemption steadily in our view. So we see God as a judge, but we see Him as our Savior. He has redeemed us. He has redeemed you. So as you look forward to judgment, we also look back to our redemption, knowing that He has ransomed us from your futile ways, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Turn to Exodus chapter 12, and we'll see here how Peter uses this reference to the Passover. He is referring back to the Passover, and as we'll read in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 13, we'll see what he's speaking about in regards to being ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. So in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight." Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh at night, roasted on the fire with an unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning." Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will, excuse me, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So before his final judgment against Egypt, God instructed the Israelites how to prepare for and observe the Passover, which then became an annual feast to remember God's ransom of his children from Egypt. So every family was to take a lamb without blemish and kill it. Then they were to apply the blood of the lamb on their doorposts so that when the Lord passed through the land in judgment, the homes marked with the blood of the lamb were passed over, freed from the judgment of God. Jesus, in this sense, is the perfect lamb. He was slain once for all, the lamb without blemish or spot, by whose blood we too are ransomed and adopted into the family of God. So while we fear God because of his impartial judgment, Peter is pointing us to trust in the sacrifice that God himself provided for us, the precious blood of Christ. So while we fear God, we also remember that our sins were already judged and paid for in Christ. Peter says in verses 20-21, to He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter wants us to know that our salvation was not some divine afterthought. It was not God reacting to what he saw man doing. Our salvation was pre-planned and has existed for an eternity past in the mind of God. It was foreknown before the foundation, though it has only been made manifest now the last time. And this fact that this salvation has eternally existed in the mind of God, this offers surety to our hope. This offers a guarantee to our hope. Because this plan was eternal. So then, where do we place our hope? Where do you place your hope? Is it in your own works? Is it in the things of this world? Is it in the systems of this world, the governments of this world? As Christians, we have a hope that we can set on our eternal loving God, an impartial judge, but a gracious Father who loves us and for an eternity past has planned to save us. We have a hope that then rests in this God. We have a hope to which we then cling An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This is our motivation for hope. This good news, the gospel of our salvation, is the primary motivation for our holiness as exiles in this foreign land. We are sojourners in this foreign land. We are strangers passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. That is our home. Because God is holy, He will judge sin. And if we are very honest with ourselves, we admit that we deserve his judgment. We have sinned against a holy God. But instead of God's judgment, we receive mercy. Because God has ransomed us. He has ransomed us. He has bought us back. Out of bondage, out of slavery, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Because we have been delivered from the bondage of our previous ways we now too can fix our minds to be ready, to be prepared for action. Because we have been delivered from our bondage, we can imitate God's holiness. And because we've been delivered from our previous bondage, we can hold them in highest esteem. It is because of the work of Christ, the work of God through Christ, we can ready our minds. We are able to reflect God's holiness. And we are called to then revere your God. As we focus our minds on this gospel, on this hope, we will be warned of God's judgment And we will be motivated by God's marvelous grace. We will be motivated by His grace to walk in holiness. To become more like Him as we journey toward the day where we will meet Him finally, face to face. But where we will meet Him not only as our judge and king, but we will meet Him as our gracious Father. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for your grace in saving us, for your grace in salvation, God. We thank you for your goodness, your mercy in that, that you in eternity past set forth a plan to perfectly save your children. Oh God, that you would help us to marvel in this, to be motivated towards good works, to be motivated to obedience in these things, God. Help us by the power of your Spirit working in us and the fact that we are your children, God. Help us to ready our minds, to be focused on your word, to prepare our minds to set our hope in you, God, to be sober-minded and set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed in Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to reflect your holiness. Help us in all our conduct and ways, God, to be set apart from the world in our conduct, in our service, and in our worship, God. Help us to be different. And God, help us to revere you as our God, as our judge, as our king, as our Lord, and as our Father. Help us to fear you in a reverent fear, Lord, to be in awe of who you are, so that we might be transformed as we walk as children in this earth, Lord, as we are exiles and citizens of heaven, strangers in this land. Help us, God, through that way, to walk in such a way that we are different, that we serve you, and that that would be evident in our deeds, in our fruit, and by our works, Lord. Help us to be obedient, loving children.